You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with James Sutter. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Jennifer Melzer. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with... 20 Minutes With is a chance for us to sit down with some extraordinary creators in order to dig into their craft and expand the never-ending quest to improve our own. Absolutely. And and Jennifer Melzer, editor, author, poisoner of cheese, I am so delighted to have you as my co-host for this 20 Minutes With. Thank you, ma'am. I am so glad to be here. I love doing this. <laughs> and you are so damn good at it. And and really, given given our guest host, I, I cannot think of another person I would rather have as my co-pilot and wing person for this venture into awesomeness. I got to tell you, I am really excited about this one. <laughs> me too. Me too. Let's 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 dive into this. Let's let's let me introduce you to our guest host, Jennifer. All right. All right. Now, now our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes with is the managing editor at Paizo Publishing and a co-creator of the Pathfinder role-playing game campaign setting, the best-selling RPG in the world. Now, at this point, I should just shut the fuck up because really, what could I possibly follow that up with that would be more interesting and awesome than managing editor at Paizo Publishing and co-creator of the Pathfinder RPG? Well, dear friends, <laughs> there is some rich material here. So l- let, me just, let me just give it a try here, okay? At eight years old, our guest host was banging out novels on his parents' manual typewriter. Now, granted, they were 10-page novels, but the fact remains, dude was writing stories with at least a vague semblance of a beginning, a middle, and an end at eight years old. And he was reading constantly, up to 10 hours a day during summer break from school. And, and literally reading whatever was at hand. One summer, his book source was his babysitter's daughter. So he mainlined about 100 Babysitter's Club novels. Poor guy. Uh, although it has been cited that, that Richard Knack's The Crystal Dragon and Joel Rosenberg's Guardians of the Flame series stand out in his memory of awesome fantasy books that laid the foundation for his love of genre fiction and sparking a love affair with gaming that would last, well, forever, obviously. Uh, <laughs> so, so here's a kid who's reading and writing like a mad fiend. You would expect a meteoric rise to literary fabulosity, right? Well, sure, right until you get into public school, where the only reading being pushed in the public schools is dusty classics, and the only writing they're pushing is the dreaded report. His muse was nearly crushed under the weight of Nathaniel Hawthorne and the much-reviled book report. Fortunately, his English 101 professor in particular redeemed educators everywhere when he said, you all know how to write a good report. Good. Now, forget all that. A computer could write that. Let's work on writing that makes someone feel something. Amen, brother. Now, we fast forward to college, specifically the University of Washington. Now, in 2003, when he was 19, his first short story sold, The Weight of Wings, published in Hobart Pulp. 
Clearly, the writing fire is still burning in his mind, and he dives into journalism. And, and we're not talking the Walter Cronkite journalism, more like the Hunter S. Thompson journalism without the recreational drugs. To hear him tell it, he was living the movie Almost Famous, writing about his favorite bands and having madcap adventures full of wacky hijinks, like being a clothed, scenery-only extra in a porn shoot, being a contestant on the Wheel of Fortune and whatnot, including editing a short-lived but infamously successful zine called Penitalia Collegiate Erotica. <laughs> now, parallel to all this mayhem, he's also indulging his love of music, a passion that persists to this day and has seen him working on musical projects ranging from punk to progressive metalcore to folk to musical theater. Now, that repertoire, dear friends, is from someone who loves making music. So, College is over, time to make a living in the world of largely conservative journalism where Gonzo is the name of a Muppet, not a style of writing. But he pulled it off, publishing over a hundred articles in some of Seattle's biggest papers, published uh, more than a few short stories, and even won a fiction prize. To make ends meet, he also taught SAT prep courses to high school kids. But there was no way that was going to last. He had learned that he really loved writing and really hated reporting. So in 2004, he began casting about for something more suited to his creative impulses. And lo, like a beacon of awesome shining in the blackest night of meh, just outside Seattle was Paizo Publishing. Now, this isn't the giant monolith of titanic fabulosity we know it to be today. Back then, it was the publisher of Dragon and Dungeon Magazine and Amazing Stories and other icons of the genre and gaming culture. They were looking for an editor-in-chief. And our guest host knew he wasn't qualified, but he started querying anyway to see if they had other positions. He had the journalistic chops to back up his play, and Lisa Stevens, CEO, liked his work but had nothing for him. So she threw him a bone with a gig collecting images for Paizo's online store at a Nicola JPEG. Several months later, Lisa brought our guest host on as Paizo's first editorial intern, which led to a customer service rep position, which... I know, it doesn't sound like a great career shift, but is really not surprising, because as you'll soon discover, this guy is charming as hell. But by early 2006, he was appointed the assistant editor of Dungeon Magazine. And then Paizo's contract with Wizards of the Coast, owners of D&D, came to an end in 2007. Paizo continued publishing the Pathfinder periodical containing supplements for use with D&D, and in March 2008, Paizo announced the Pathfinder role-playing game. And it was developed over the course of a year with contributions from our guest host and uh, about 100,000 other playtesters, but our guest host was definitely a contributing factor. Now, Paizo was big into stories, and in 2010, our guest host edited their publication of Before They Were Giants, printing the first publication stories of authors like William Gibson, Cory Doctorow, Larry Niven, and China Mieville. And they included interviews with writing advice from each of these dudes. Now, I don't know about you, but that is being added to my personal library as soon as we're all done here. Now, he also had a story in the 2010 anthology Machine of Death, which led to one of our guest host's proudest moments. 
watching Glenn Beck lose his shit when Machine of Death bumped his book out of the number one slot on Amazon. Ah, the small pleasures of existence. Now, Paizo also started publishing novels set in its Pathfinder universe. Our guest host had a hundred stories in his head, but as the editor of their growing fiction line, now do keep in mind in the early days he had earned the nickname The Render for his ruthless treatment of the slush pile, it really wasn't appropriate. Now, one day, while printing out some of his stories, his personal stories, on the company photocopier, publisher Eric Mona just happens to stroll by and picks up one of the stories. Now, thank God, our guest host's name was not actually on these manuscripts, <laughs> but Mona reads them and says, holy crap, these are good. We should hire this guy to write novels in the Pathfinder universe, to which our guest host says, uh, dude, those are mine. Uh, to which Mona replies, so you write the novel then. What about nepotism? I'm your boss, right? You do what I tell you, right? Write the damn novel. Now, I paraphrase, of course, but that is how Death's Heretic, number three on Barnes & Noble's Best Fantasy of 2011 and finalist for the Compton Crook Award and 2013 Origins Award and its sequel, The Redemption Engine, were added to the world's library of awesome. Also, it does bear mentioning that <laughs> alongside all of this, the most recent metal band that he's been in, Brides of the Lizard God, just released their first EP, A Different Kind of Terror. Now, the badassery just doesn't stop there. The dude has his own YouTube page. Uh, a friend once wrote and produced a full-length musical about him. And then, of course, he returned the favor. He could eat several pounds of blueberries without suffering gastric distress, and he can consistently hit the high note in the song Take On Me. Now, I don't know if the potosphere can handle this much awesome, but dudes, we're going to give it a try. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Mr. James Sutter. James Dude, <laughs> between the death ray and all of the other fabulosity going on in your life, I don't know how you found the time, but I'm really glad you did. Thank you for joining us here on the round table. And Dave, I don't know how you managed to get a hold of my mother's phone number, but you must have <laughs> called her to dig up some of that dirt. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, awesome, awesome. I'm glad to know the minions did their job, did their job well. Um, we'll need to ask you to leave your apartment so that the team can clean up the bugs and yeah, do a sweep. At any rate, uh, let's let's not bandy words or waste any time. Let's dive into 20 minutes or so, <laughs> with James L. Sutter. I'll go ahead and set the timer, which we will ignore, and let's roll into it. James, dude, I have so many things that I want to ask you. Uh, um, let, let's let's lead off with this. Uh, uh, last May, on Dave Gross's blog, uh, you said that, uh, as an author, I was never a big outliner before I started editing novels, and now I outline everything. Now, I can only imagine that first book, all right? Could you describe what your process was diving into that first book? Because this is your first novel. You've written short stories forever. Uh, uh, you've got a lot of publications under your belt journalistically, editorially. This is your first book. Could you describe that process for us? What, what did you discover about your writing style in writing that first book? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because my first book that I got published was uh, Death's Heretic, obviously. But um, when I got the gig for that, I was already about 20,000 words into another novel that I hadn't outlined that I was just doing for me. Um, and it was going nowhere. You know, I I loved the, the setting uh, and the, sort of the feel of the start, but I just had no idea where it was going. And the longer I wrote, the more it became clear that I did not know where things were headed and it just meandered. And so actually it was really nice when I got the the gig, um, you know, when I got a nod from Eric, like, Hey, you should write a novel. I, I was able to switch gears. And then with tie in fiction, you have to write a big outline because the company needs to know in advance what they're buying. I mean, if you're going to write in a shared world, you know, and that doesn't matter whether it's Pathfinder or Star Wars or whoever. Um, if you say, Hey, I want to write this book playing in your sandbox, playing with all these toys you've developed, people naturally want to know, you know, what you're going to do with those <laughs> toys. Are you going to, are you going to, you know, blow up Han Solo? Like they want to know in advance. <laughs> um, so I had to sit down and write an outline and it was good because I'd also been at that point, um, you know, editing the Pathfinder fiction for got a couple years at that point, um, including a year of the novel line. And I'd been making all these authors do outlines for me. And so I'd been learning from them. And it was actually an amazing experience because it, when you actually break a novel down into an outline, everything seems much more manageable. <laughs> um, you know, when you just look at a novel and you say, that's a hundred thousand words of awesome. And I have no idea how to get there. It's terrifying. It's monolithic. Um, but then when you actually break it down and say, you know, in scene one, they need to go here. And in chapter three, they need to go over there. Um, you can really drill down. And for me, after like really that first novel, Death's Heretic, was the one where I learned how to outline. And it as I went along, I realized how much more comfortable I was writing now that I knew what the next chapter was going to be, because then I could just focus on the individual scene. And to this day, that's still how I feel, where when I don't have an outline, I'm sort of adrift. And, you know, maybe with a short story, you can just kind of power through and figure out where it's going as you go. But for a novel, my problem is that I'll start, you know, I'll start writing and then I'll say, okay, well, I got to remember to do X so that I can have that, you know, so that I can get to the ending I want. Okay, well, then I got to remember that other scene I need to do later and that other thing. And pretty soon <laughs> you're trying to keep, you know, the 20 next scenes in your brain instead of working on the scene that you're actually writing. And so writing those down in an outline allows me to just purge them from my brain and focus entirely on the minutia of what's going on in the given scene. Um, and so it's so much more freeing. It's so much more fun to know that I don't have to keep it all in my head. A lot of discovery writers say that that having an outline kills the the discovery and, and the excitement in that, that, that moment of impulse and creative explosion. Do you find that to, to be the case for you? No, I find that I'm the opposite. I'm paralyzed. If I don't know where I'm going... Um, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I don't know where I'm going and it just sucks all the mojo out. Um, and also the other thing is, you know, I don't, I don't really like revising. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to flat out say like the closer my draft can be to a final, the better, the more time I can spend polishing as opposed to totally revising. And, you know, I know authors that just sort of wing it, but then, you know, if you're going to have to go back and do you know, four revisions every time you think of something that 
you know, makes the plot hang together. That just seems like so much extra work. I'd rather really plan it out and then try and hit it as well as I can on the first shot. And I've been very lucky so far. I, I live in fear of the day when an, uh, you know, an editor comes back to me on a novel and says, this is totally broken. Start over. <laughs> I know every author has that moment. And I've been very lucky on my first two. <laughs> well, and then and, and just it's like Russian roulette, man, that that chamber keeps spinning. Someday it'll mm-hmm. hit you. Someday it'll hit you. Exactly. Um, I've, I'm actually really interested by that because I I used to be a total pantser <laughs> of myself as a writer. Um, and just this last maybe two years, I've started to do a lot more outlining. So it's interesting to hear, you know, somebody who wrote a lot of short stories and then moved into writing novels and also edits how much easier it was. So I, I think that's, that's pretty interesting um, that you break it down so meticulously. I mean, I tend to do it the opposite. I just loose outline. But it yeah. sounds like you have it like pretty tight, well, like, scene by scene. You know, it, de- it really depends. Um, like for an outline, the outlines that I often ask my authors for, uh, for the Pathfinder books and that I write myself for those novels are generally, if it's a 90 or 100,000 word book, the outlines are like, Five to seven thousand words. They're really chapter by chapter, and maybe each chapter gets a paragraph of just what's going on. Um, and I don't really need to go uh, in depth scene by scene. But what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll make that big outline, and then when I go to work on chapter three or whatever, for usually the first thing I start doing is hash out. Okay, well, what scenes need to be in chapter three, and do like a little mini outline for that one, and just all the way down, even to the point where if I'm just in writing a conversation between two characters, and I need to remember that to hit points A, B, and C, I'll just write them down so that I don't have to hold them in my brain. Um, that said, I mean, I I certainly have done loose outlines before, but I know that my own. Uh, my own desire is always to start writing as soon as possible. Um, and it's a really easy way to lose projects for me. If I don't make myself outline, I get really excited about writing the scenes that I'm really excited about and I write them and then I run out of juice and I don't have that connecting material. And so I need to actually think about that in advance. And I mean, for my last book, I knew what the the climax scene was I waited to write that for like two years um, because I make myself write straight through because I know that, okay, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I don't want to write, you know, chapter five as much as I want to write chapter 10, but I have to write it, you know, I have to finish dinner before I get dessert. You know, that's my, (laughs) that's the way I trick myself. You're self-carroting yourself, dangling that last chapter out in front of you. Go, man, go. Absolutely. So you never write out of order? You know, I not really, and it's because I know that if I'm gonna that if I write it out of order, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up writing just my favorite parts. I'm gonna cherry pick, and that's actually a lot of my early uh, short stories were even like that, where they were almost these vignettes where it would be like you know three or four scenes smashed together and it would be all the scenes I was excited to write, but the stories ended up very choppy. Um, And so after a while, I was trying to figure out how to make a story that really flows from beginning to end. Um, And my solution is to outline it all and then write it from beginning to end. Cause that way also you don't run into the thing of, 
you know, if you write a later scene, then when you go back earlier, you have to remember what the characters know and don't know. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I find that trying to keep my writing experience as close as possible to the reading experience, um, I think makes me better at what I do. Um, but that's because of my own quirks. I don't, I don't have any problem with other people, you know, writing out of order. If it's whatever works best for you. Sure, sure. For absolutely. some people, it feels really stifling. To have such a rigid outline, it like Dave said before, it it cuts into the creative process for some people. But um, I'm discovering myself, like what you said, that the more you know going into it, the easier it is to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and then you get to do the discovery. For me, the discovery is all in the little bits, the little details where, you know, I'll get to. Um, and this is the same way I write uh, game books as well, you know, talking about for RPGs, you know. I'll take a book and divide it up in all the sections and know that, well, here I'm going to write about locations and here I'm going to write about monsters and there will be seven monsters. And, you know, like when I break it down like that, I can have these little bite-sized chunks that I can maybe do just in a sitting. And then I can just let my brain free to come up with whatever I can come up with um, and really try and uh, try and bring that sense of discovery to the micro level instead of the macro level. We'll be back with more of our conversation with James Sutter after this brief promotional break. The city of Charlton is a city divided. Upper Charlton, where the rich and powerful work and play, and Charlton Terrace, where corporate dynasties and powerful gangs ensure that the poor stay on the right side of the economic gap. In the terrace, Miranda Garen has a chance to make a new life for herself with the help of an old family friend and his plans for advanced medical technology. Creepin Byrne is the favorite son of Upper Charlton, champion of the local boxing circuit and heir to a corporate empire. Their separate worlds are brought together and destroyed around them in a single night by the leader of the Cabezas de Muerta gang, who will stop at nothing in order to make a name for himself in Upper Charlton. Forced into using the experimental cybernetic technology Miranda had been working on, Creethan must put aside everything he knew of his privileged existence and work with Miranda. Together, they must find a way to escape the machinations of the cruel, vindictive gang leader, the new dangers that lie in the belly of the terrace, and their own personal demons, and reclaim control of what remains of their lives. Broken is a near-future inner-city cybernetics adventure written by Cedric Johnson and Veronica Jaguar. Get your own copy of Broken on Amazon and Smashwords. Learn more about the authors at thepenofzen.wordpress.com and www.voicesbyveronica.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with James Sutter. Well, and, and as I recall, you do the same thing with your world building as well. I, I remember mm-hmm. reading an art, reading one of your interviews and you were talking about how you, you'd lay out this map and you put little dots on the map and you try and figure out what's this dot? Why is that dot there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I suffer terribly from the, uh, you know, everybody calls the fear of the blank canvas, right? Like we all have it where if you're just sitting there looking at, uh, you know, a blank sheet of paper or a blank cursor on the screen, um, there's so much potential that there's nothing to work off of. And so for me, I'll often, you know, if I'm if I'm world building especially, um, you know, I'll come up with a map and just start putting random dots on the map um, and then say, okay, well, that dot's kind of near the sea. Um, is it a port town? Well, what's, what's weird about it? Does it have giant towers rising up out of the rocks in the harbor? Well, why? You know, yeah, um, yeah. any... 
any grain of sand can become a pearl, but you need that grain of sand. And so, you know, not even just with maps, like I've done the same thing where if somebody says, hey, write up a gazetteer of this nation, um, I remember some of my early ones, I would just write up a list of proper nouns, names <laughs> where I had no idea what they meant. Sometimes they'd be made up words. Sometimes they'd just be like portmanteaus that sounded cool, whatever. Um, and then I would I would write that and then I would step back and look at them and say, okay, well, what do I, what do I think that is? Like, what is blister well? You know, I didn't know when I wrote it, <laughs> but, but what does it suggest now? It's that sort of free association that, uh, or like it translates to everything. Like in music, one of my favorite ways to write lyrics, um, as my bandmates will tell you is to just sing, sing gibberish, sing whatever has the right sort of feel in my mouth. Um, and then go back later and try and figure out what I was saying. And even though I know intellectually that I wasn't saying anything important, sometimes you'll hear like, oh, it almost sounds like I said blank. And then and then I can use that to write the whole song, right? It's just anything that gets you moving in a direction is good. Wow. That's fantastic. It's, it's one of those things that I actually is really useful. You know, Dave and I were talking a little, little bit earlier about – um you know, deadline pressure yeah, and how, when you need to write something on command, uh, because a book's shipping in a, you know, in a few hours and the article's a page short, um, the ability to be creative on command is really useful. Um, and paralyzing though, I would imagine. I mean, oh, go, yeah. go, you've got a half hour. What? Yeah. And it better be good, but it's also in a way kind of freeing because you can just throw everything at the wall and for, uh, it'll cascade out. So, for instance, my most recent novel, The Redemption Engine, is set in a city called Karamaga, which is one of my pet cities that I uh, invented and am sort of most known for in Pathfinder. That was came out of a book called City of Strangers, which was uh, like a travel guide to that city. And that, in turn, came out of like a sidebar that I'd written in the back of a module, um, the first uh, module I ever wrote for Pathfinder. Um because I just needed a setting for the the dungeon to be in, and at you know two a.m. I just pounded out a bunch of stuff that sounded sounded weird and interesting. You know the <laughs> it's like and and I had no idea what it was at the time. It was just um there are bloat mages and worm folk and the sweet talkers <laughs> who stitch their own lips shut, and I didn't know what any of that meant. But when I came back later, it sounded really cool, and the fans wanted to know what it was, so. I got to find out what it was and just keep expanding it, um, which is why I, whenever I write a world book um, or even novels, like I love dropping allusions to things that aren't explained, you know, whether it's proper nouns or just little um, attributions where it's like, oh, that's that's where the poet whales live. Well, what's a poet whale? Stadium the next doesn't week. know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's job security is what it is, because when somebody... Like when somebody reads that and A, imagines what it is, well, now I've hooked them enough that they're imagining. Or B, when they demand to know what it is, maybe I get to write a book where I get to explore what it is. So. Well, and it's a foundational <laughs> writing uh, element. Actually, two, two that combines two core writing elements, I think. One of them is raising a question in the reader's mind that they want an answer to. Granted, in this case, they won't get it, but at least you raise the question. And also that you don't have to explain everything, that you leave things open, let the reader collaborate with you as they, as they read your story. 
Exactly. And that's extra important, you know, coming from gaming as I do, um, you know, well, not coming from, I'm still in gaming, right? right. Um, but I think that it's, it's a technique that we learn, especially because gaming is all about providing people with tools to tell stories rather than just telling a story. So for me, every time I, I leave something that's suggestive but not thoroughly explained, that's a chance for a game master to get excited about it, come up with their own answer, base an adventure around it. Like that is a question is always more interesting for me to play with than a fact. Um, and so that's a thing that I try to do, certainly in my game fiction or in my game uh, material, but also in my fiction, just because that's what I love. I want stuff that sparks me. And, you know, maybe it won't stay unanswered forever. I mean, I love coming back to stuff that I mentioned not knowing what it was and getting paid to figure it out and telling the, you know, talking to the fans. You know, sometimes I have an idea from the beginning of what something is. Other times, I have no idea what it is. And making something that'll sound like I planned it all along is, uh, <laughs> that's the magic trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and that's the mojo of the author. That's the best part. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the author, always, you know, a reader picks up a book and, the, and, and everybody wants to read an awesome book, so they assume it's going to be awesome. So you've got a lot of coin uh, right up front that you can, you can do that with. It's like, I know what I'm talking about. It's, 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 it's bitter well. What's that? Well, yeah, exactly. no, I know what it is. You, you figure it out. Now, going back to that concept of of that that creative crunch, that free association, um, uh, especially when you're under deadline, uh, uh, I would imagine that that giving yourself permission to do that free association is is kind of a matter of faith on your part, faith that that somehow this this random jumble of of associative nouns and adjectives is somehow going to come together into something coherent is did you have that faith leading off and did it evolve no, over time no, not at, not at all um you know i was as terrified as everybody else um and in some ways i still am you know uh whenever i start a new project or more appropriately whenever i'm a third of the way through a new project uh <laughs> is when you get that the terror of the oh god i don't really know how to do this um, but I really like the deadline crunch uh, and the deadline creativity because I'm a firm believer, and I think it was, I think it was Bradbury among many other people who said that quantity begets quality. Um, and there's that whole parable that you've probably all heard about the, uh, you know, the the studies where uh, you take a pottery class and you tell them, okay, half the class you're going to be graded on one pot, so take the whole semester and make one perfect pot. And then the other half of the class, you're going to be graded on quantity of pots. It doesn't matter how good they are, but just make as many as you can. And at the end of the class, the the people who made a bajillion pots almost always have one that is better than the, you know, the people who just tried to make that one perfect one. And so I think I've certainly fallen prey to the trying to make one perfect thing and agonizing about it. Uh, and nowadays I've just realized you know, as long as it's good enough, like I need to make it quality, but I can't, I can never tell what people are going to like the best <laughs> of what I do. I have no idea what's going to hit and what's not. So the answer is just write something, make it as good as I can and put it out there. Um, and, and write the next thing. And write the next thing. You know I mean? It, and it applies to music. It applies to writing. It applies to game stuff. Um, 
And and it's fun because you get to constantly hop from project to project and keep the momentum and the excitement. Sure. And you just don't know. I mean, the song that I get most requested to play by my friends when we're all hanging out is one that I wrote in an evening for like a friend's birthday party. Um, not the, you know, ones that I've recorded on albums and put out into the world. You know, there's you just never know what's gonna tickle people. Have you have you ever gotten a request for do the fucking dishes? <laughs> I have performed that song live as it turns out. <laughs> I did that at a at a benefit show once and that was that was very fun. I can imagine. Well, and speaking of your music, Jennifer and I were were talking about the the connection between music and writers. Jennifer, what were you what were you talking about with the uh, the writing and the music? Um just that you know, like how how much does does the fact that you write and play music affect, you know, your fiction writing? Um, you know, it's interesting because I think um you would think that it would mean that I would write a, about music, um, and that almost never happens, um, perhaps just because I'm too close to it. Like, I enjoy reading about bands, uh, but I've just never really gone that direction. Um, but I think that, for me, it all comes from the same place. It's all the drive to not just make art, but really to entertain. Like, I know I know a lot of writers and musicians and whatever who are there to make art. You know, they're trying to make something beautiful and whether or not somebody sees it or listens to it uh, doesn't really matter to them. And that is not me at all. <laughs> I am I am an entertainer first and foremost. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think we often have this idea that an artist should be in it for the art. Um, but in my mind, my art doesn't have my art is built to entertain, so it doesn't have any value until there's an audience. Um, you know, a book that just sits on my computer and never gets published isn't really a book at all because the reader provides, like, the it's it's Schrodinger's book at that point. Until the observer <laughs> reads it, it's not a good book. It's not a bad book. It's not a book at all until the audience is involved. Um, well, you've always you've always had a very collaborative quality to to most of the things that you pursue, and even even your your superpower, as you described it on on the Skiffy and Panty blog, was was talking to people. Well, it's true. Although I will also say, and this is you know, uh, as everybody who's worked with me <laughs> knows, um, I am actually terrible at group projects. <laughs> really? Unless, <laughs> yes, I am terrible at group projects because I get super obsessive and want everything to be. Well done, unless um, if I trust the people I'm working with, uh, if I think that they're, you know, uh, they're talented and they're, they know what they're doing, um, then I love group projects. It's why I love being in bands, because I feel like the, the sum is always greater than, uh, you know. The whole is greater than the, the sum of the its parts. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, exactly. Um, but if I'm in a group with people, if I'm trying to do a project and I feel like somebody isn't as good uh, as I would want them to be at something, I drive them and me nuts, you know, <laughs> constantly being over their shoulders. So my solution is to uh, surround myself with incredibly brilliant, creative people uh, <laughs> who I can who I can feel comfortable throwing things around with. A but, shrewd uh, creative strategy. Well done, sir. <laughs> well, and, yeah, and I'm, you know, I've totally got the, you know, I'm a checklist person. I'm, if something's due in four weeks, I want to get it done now, you know, just mm -hmm. so that I can have it off my list. Like, 
let it never be said that I am not a little neurotic. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, it's it's served me well. I, I I don't think you can be an editor without having some some measure of neuroses. <laughs> For um, sure. Now I I we're running out of time, but I had to ask this one question. Um, uh, Back in 2013, Cat uh, Rambo, uh, now vice president of SIFWA, Cat Rambo, uh, interview, interviewed you for that website, and uh, you had mentioned that uh, you try to be really upfront with your authors, uh, and by that you're referring to your, your Paizo authors, about yeah. the fact that as media tie-in writers, we're less artists than artisans. And as long as we're talking about the collaborative process and the editorial process, what did you mean by that? Could you expand on what the difference is between an artist and an artisan? That is actually, you know, it's funny. I hope that's one of those lines that I'm remembered for because I think that that perfectly describes uh, the relationship. And it's because I think people think of artists as you, you know, you go off on your own and you build this thing and it's a perfect expression of you and your soul, um, whether it's a book or a pot or whatever. Um, whereas an artisan is somebody who builds a thing for other people. You know, you, mm. the construction worker who builds your house. Um, and so when you're dealing with tie-in fiction, um, and by tie-in fiction, if anybody listening to this doesn't know, I mean books that are written in established shared universes owned by someone else. So whether that's Dragonlance or Star Wars or Indiana Jones or Pathfinder or whatever, those are all tie-in media properties. Um, and I think it's really important for people to realize that you are are a construction worker when you're working on one of those. You are building a house for somebody. And that means that when you're done, you turn over the keys and you don't have any claim on that house anymore. Like the person who builds your house doesn't get to come back and say, <laughs> I really do not like how you arranged the furniture. <laughs> we need to have a talk about this. No, you can't um, put that bookshelf up there. No, it's going to throw you, off the whole room. Exactly. But it's, it's really hard to do. People say, well, I wrote this novel, but if you wrote the novel working under one of these contracts, because, you know, the company owns it and the company actually needs to own it because you're playing with toys that somebody else built. Um, you know, I'm cognizant that even, you know, I'm one of the builders of the Pathfinder setting, but I'm not the sole creator. And so I have a responsibility to the other people, you know, the other creative icons who, you know, made the game, you know, to Eric Mona, the publisher, and Wes Schneider, the editor-in-chief, and James Jacobs, and all the others, um, they built that world, too, and so my my novels have to, and my game books have to play well with what they've created as well, and so it's important for the company to own that and be able to do whatever they want, which means that you don't have perfect freedom when you're writing for a company uh, like media tie-in, but actually that can also really be a strength because I've had plenty of authors tell me, God, it's so much, I'm such a better writer when I don't have to create the world on my own. You know, <laughs> when I can just focus on the characters or the plot. Um, and certainly even myself, I love, you know, I love creating and world building, but I also love like in my most recent book, my characters go to hell um, for a significant portion of it. And Wes Schneider, my my colleague, is sort of the architect of Pathfinder's hell. And so I got to go through the stuff that he'd written and cherry pick my best, you know, my favorite parts and say, hey, I'm going to put this in my book now. And everybody's going to love that part of my book. 
And, you know, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, like it's a really nice uh, thing to be able to do to yourself as an author to sort of spread some of that load to other, you know, brilliant creative minds. Sure. And contribute to to a canon that has already achieved uh, a measure of, of love and investment on the part of its fans. Uh, you get to you get to swim in those waters and participate in that. That's huge. Oh my- yeah, exactly. It's it's being part of something larger than yourself as an author, which is really, you know, is a blessing and a curse because especially in gaming, you know, people live in that world. You know, if somebody's I've had people say, you know, we've been playing in your city, you know, a city <laughs> I created, you know, every every Friday night for years. Well, that's that's amazing. That's a totally new and a huge level of investment by these people in the thing that you've created. Um so it's it's awesome, but it also brings with it this responsibility not to invalidate uh, the world they've come to love. Sure, sure. And and after playing in it every Friday evening for years, uh, it technically isn't your city anymore. Exactly, they've it's made it their very city. much their it's, own. Yeah, yeah. And I I love that. I love talking <laughs> to people when they when they take something that I've created and run with it. That's kind of the greatest compliment you can have. Well, really, when you get down to it, I mean, writing. I, I'm I want to go off all, all woo. Time to get here. profound. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I feel the profound bones shaking. Everybody, put on your smoking jackets. Right. Whip out your <laughs> pipe. Uh, but but really, I mean. You look at authors like Chuck Wendig or Mer Lafferty, yes. uh, uh, and and they're they're very much aware of almost that collaborative nature. Even though they are masters of their own properties, there is that sense that they're contributing to the to a community of of genre fiction. And I think some of the best authors out there. <sighs> approach the craft with that spirit that yes this i'm a special special snowflake and here's my special snowflake of a novel but it exists in a continuum of other novels even though they're not necessarily that world we are participating in uh, uh, a joy that is unique to us Uh, and in that we're all artisans there we go okay Patches on elbows, tweed. I hear the rustle of tweed. I also can't help but notice that our clock has has actually morphed into a twelve hit die monster, uh, uh, and is charging at me uh, uh, with 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 malice aforethought, uh, which can only mean we are way over time, and I'm yeah. not at all surprised. Uh, James Sutter, thank you so much. This has been not only a delight, but but an education and an inspiration. We appreciate it, man. Thank you guys so much for having me here. This has been awesome. Absolutely. Jennifer, there, there was a lot of writerly goodness strewn about in there. What, what are you taking away from this? I just want to go right now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, actually, I want to go outline is what I want to do. <laughs> right? Meticulously plot and plan. That's right. That's right. Oh, exactly. my God. But outlining is so horrible. It's so painful. It's so no, painful. It's, no, it's, it's like you say. It's, and and I'm, I'm the same way. I, when I world build, I do the same thing. I put the little dots on there and I go, okay, I'm going to put a forest here. And how does that fit? And all of a sudden, bam, there's a mythology that just kind of... Yes. Right there. Right there. So for me, uh, uh, I'm taking... The, the primary thing I'm taking 
taking is that affirmation of surrounding yourself with brilliant people. Uh, uh, I have found this time and again in in the the Facebook writing group that I'm in, uh, uh, the the people that come onto the round table, my the the circle of friends that I think we all inherently gather to us. Surrounding yourself with brilliant people is probably the best inspiration uh, uh, and and a fostering of collaboration you can do for yourself. And that's that's just a great affirmation. The other minor thing is is that I want Wes Schneider's title of Architect of Hell. Yeah, I, I want yeah. that title. Uh, uh, and I'm clearly I'm going to have to aspire to uh, to to wrest it from him somehow some way. Ah, uh, awesome. Very cool. Well, friends, here's here's the awesomeness of the round table in, in just 7 days. You're, you're gonna dial in your your podcatcher once more to the to the roundtable podcast frequency. You're going to hear James come back, and we're all gonna sit down and we're gonna workshop a story together, which is going to be epic badassery of the highest order. Uh, so thank you so much for tuning in, as always. Uh, uh, but holy crap, seven days is a long damn time to wait, Jennifer. That's Give, give, throw throw our listeners a bone. What should they be doing between now and then? I think they need to get out there and write. Oh, hell yes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Get out there and write. And dear friends, I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. And our guest host is probably the best example of that in the world right now. So set your sights on the awesomeness, the coolness, the fabulosity. And trust me, dear friends, if you do that, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.